Well, just a little introduction. Uh, I'm Sam Molind, and I've been the director for Global Health Outreach for a number of years. Uh, I've refired and am now uh, doing uh, the directorship of our Global Health Relief teams. And uh, so it's a joy for me to be here today. And before we get started in, in some of this, and I hope to have some time you know, to go over some other things that you might be thinking you have an interest for or want to do it. And there's such a small uh, sort of group here that it would be good uh, if you have a question to just bring it up, you know, while we're talking about that, and then we can, we can do it, okay? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings and for your grace and love. We Know that the motivating joy of our practices is knowing you and allowing you to be known. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the privilege you give us of caring for patients. We thank you for the privilege of finding out what your Holy Spirit is doing in the life of our patients. And we thank you for the opportunity to reveal the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we uh, just ask that you would guide our thoughts today, that you would guide our presentation, and that you would be glorified and honored, and we might be a blessing to you in our work and in our witness. For we ask it for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, oral and maxillofacial surgery is such a love for me. I don't know if any of you know me, but I told Dorothy, I said, you know, uh, I love oral and maxillofacial surgery and taking care of patients so much that I would do it for nothing. You know, I can't believe I'm being paid for it. So, uh, in other words, I was getting paid for doing good. But now that I'm retired, I'm good for nothing. Well, we know that uh, that's a toothy situation, and sometimes we're asked to get to the root of the problem. So this is a, 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 thinking about what dental emergencies are. We're, we're going to go on in, in a few areas, and sort of one of the areas is how do dental abscesses happen and, and so forth. And the most common way, of course, is, is through caries that gets into the dental pulp, causes the infection to go down the root until it gets down into the bone as well. And, of course, what is the treatment for an abscessed tooth? It, it's to get the infection out, which is the infected pulp. Now, you can do it by getting the tooth out, <laughs> or you can do it by getting the dental pulp out, which is like root canal treatment. So that's, that's a way that, that we know, uh, I'm not telling you anything different, but here's something that I think is important. As you folks, whether you're in primary care as a physician or whether you're a dentist, we see people that have uh, dental infections. And sometimes as we look at them, maybe our first thought isn't, wow, they've got a dental infection, particularly if you're a physician. 
you may think, oh my, look at that periorbital cellulitis. You know, I, I, I think they've got a, an eye, you know, infection. Were they, you know, stung by a bee or did they, you know, what, what's the infection problem there? So we're, they're not thinking that facial swellings and, and inflammation and infection is related dentally all the time. Now, if, if we look at, 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 at a situation, the first sign of infection uh, might be edema. And that occurs in how many days? Zero to three days. We might see edema come. Now, the, the interesting thing, edema, there's mild pain. The size is variable in, in edema. It has diffuse borders and it has a normal color. So is this edema? No, no it's not. Okay. So when you, when you see edema, that's, that's what you're looking for. And if you were to go further, does it have pus in edema? No. And the other thing is, what kind of bacteria are we usually thinking of when we're thinking of edema? Anaerobic bacteria. So anaerobic bacteria... Slow, it's, it's not a serious uh, situation at that time, uh, but that's, that's the story. Then, then as that progresses, what do you have? That progresses, you get a cellulitis, okay? Now, that usually occurs in five to seven days, so it's nice to ask people, too, how long have you been uncomfortable? How long have you had the swelling? And that sort of gives you an idea. Now, if you have cellulitis... Now, now it's, it's spreading. It, it has the consistency of more or less like a jelly type consistency. And, and like I said, zero to five days. And the pain can be moderate to severe. Some patients have a fair amount of pain when they have cellulitis. In other words, the infection is broken through the bone and it has gone out into the soft tissue. And it, it, it becomes uncomfortable. Is pus present in cellulitis? No. No pus present in cellulitis. But it's also, as it gets to a cellulitis, we're thinking more about mixed bacteria uh, being on board. And we're also thinking about diffuse borders. Cellulite, this, is, this is what you might say is a cellulitis. You know, there's lymphedema under the eye with the puffiness and the redness. And you still have that board-like <coughs> size. And the size can be large. And then how about the abscess? Okay. If you're talking about an abscess, how long might that be? Well, four to ten days. It can be four to ten days. Remember, every infection is a battle between the virulence of the organisms and the host resistance. I mean, if you have high resistance, you may postpone it a bit, you know, and you may be able to fight it off better. So a lot of these things, and where do we find that out? Patients that are on uh, chemotherapy, patients that are immune compromised, patients that have leukemia and, and other blood dyscrasias, they are not capable often of fighting off an infection. So we get a young child that has 
a pericornitis or a dental infection, very serious when they have leukemia and other kinds of problems. So we want to be very proactive and preventive for them having problems because they can die. We can give them all the antibiotics. We can do all kinds of things, but the body resistance itself is not there to surround and phagocytize the, the organism. So um, with an abscess, remember I said four to ten days, pain is severe with an abscess. And the localization is smaller. It's now becoming localized. It's often very brawny around that abscess cavity, and then in the abscess cavity you get what? Fluxulence and pus. So pus is available. Now the treatment for an abscess is incision and drainage. It is not to uh, just give antibiotics. You have to drain the pus out. Often the pus with the bacteria and everything that's, that's in that area can continue to spread, and it can be uh, sort of a serious thing. So let's move on to looking at, at some particular cases. This is past the cellulitis stage. There's still some redness, but this is developing into, into an abscess. We see, you know, these patients come in with uh, a great deal of discomfort. Whether we're on the mission, am I in your way? Let me try and... I make a better door than a window. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so this is, uh, this, this is a, a fellow on the field, and he has also an abscess. He's got a lot of edema. You notice his lips are tremendously swollen, particularly when we get abscesses in the canine fossa area. The lips become very, and then we get that periorbital uh, swelling as well. And, and the thing that's interesting is that these particular things can spread, and I'm going to get a, a pointer that will help me if I can find it. Um, the, a, a tooth infection can spread into various compartments. So it is very important for us to know that this infection can spread into the sublingual space. It can spread to the submandibular space. It can spread out to the, the buccal space. It can spread in these various areas. Same thing with a, with a maxillary tooth. It can go in the sinus. It can go to the palate. It can go any of those different areas. So we're going to take a look at some of those. And where we get into a great deal of problem is with wisdom teeth where infection can spread behind the mylohyoid area, this is the mylohyoid muscle, can spread behind the mylohyoid. It can go into the floor of the mouth, the submandibular area, the, the pterygoid space, the, uh, and, and we get peritonsillar abscesses, and we get Ludwig's angina. <laughs> we get tremendous problems when some of these infections go, and, we, and, the, and we're not treating them properly. So... Um, Basically, we, we want to talk about some abscesses, and the principles are basically the same. Here's a gentleman that has an abscess in, in, in some anterior teeth. We, we say, how are we going to deal with this? Well, you know, you don't like to inject into an area where there's an abscess. Why? Well, you can spread it, but an abscess cavity is acetic. 
And what is a local anesthetic? It's a basic saw. So they counteract each other. You don't get good anesthetic. So injecting into the surface area, blanching that tissue. You notice how that's blanched up in this this area from local anesthetic? And then if you make your incision right through that area. I didn't go into the abscess cavity. I just went into the, the that tissue. And then if you do that, then you can make your incision into the the abscess cavity and get some drainage. And what I often do is use the local anesthetic as an irrigant. Now, why is that a good thing to do? Because you have an abscess cavity, you want to make sure that it's not loculated. In other words, that there's not separations in it that remain to have pus. And then the other thing you want to be careful of is that you place a drain so that you can get it, keep it open and get some drainage. That's very important because you could build up again if you just incise and drain and you don't flush it out and you don't break down the abscess cavities that might be there, uh, you can get a recurrence. And you think you're doing fine, but you're not doing so good. So that's a, a very important thing. We can see the difference, and I thought I'd, I'd like to mention that this is the, the attachment of the mylohyoid muscle. So you can see that third molars go down often below that area. So do seconds often. It's somewhat variable. So which, where those infections come into the oral cavity, sublingual or submandibular, depends on the relationship anatomically that that those areas have. And so you can see, here's an example of someone that, that has had an abscess go out into the buccal space, and and really that you can see it. It's sort of more localized. It's indurated. It's you can see that those areas, uh, how those areas develop, and the same thing here when they go down into the submandibular space, the infection. So when that when that does happen, you know that you've got some serious problems. And uh, let's take a look here. Here's a, a, a time when that abscess from the tooth has gone up into the superior space. If you look at that, the area is swollen, it's fluctuant, it's tender, it's, it's time to, to do an IND. Now some of these uh, situations like this, this is a maxillary tooth or an upper tooth, you can see that it can go in the buccal space, it can go in the palatal area, it can go into the sinus. And actually, I have seen cases where it's on both sides. It's actually in the palatal area with a great deal of infection and expansion, and it's also in the, in the, the buccal gingival area. So incision and drainage, we have to be very careful, analyze the area, know uh, which teeth are involved. The tooth is often very, very sensitive. It may be loose, may be depressible. Those kind of things will give you great clues as well as the sort of anatomy uh, of the situation. And so the, uh, when you get into the maxillary area, you can do a second division block. You can go up in the superior palatine foramen and, and you can block the whole area. So we have a lot more uh, 
variability that we can use with our anesthetic techniques. But making an incision and getting drainage, going up in and breaking out the loculations for good draining, flushing and putting in your drain, the important issues remain no matter what, uh, no matter what area it is. Uh, even the mandibular area is basically the same. The most important thing is after you break that, that area up, you open that up, you get good drainage, you flush it out, then you're putting in a drain. It can be a Penrose drain. It can be uh, iodoform gauze will stay in pretty well. Uh, if you're on the field and you don't have uh, any drain, you're on the mission field, cut a finger out of your glove and uh, make a little incisions in it. Put that little piece right up in there. If you stretch it over the end of a hemostat, you can put it right up to the end of the area. You pull the hemostat out a little bit, and now you've got the drain way up, you know, just by doing that. So those are the things we need to sort of think about as we're doing just routine IND. So gauze we need. We need... Uh, an antiseptic, a local anesthetic, and a blade. You need some saline, maybe if you're going to irrigate uh, a large abscess cavity. Uh, you need your packing gauze. You need a dressing, and you need the hemostat. So you need to be prepared when you're ready to, to go ahead and do some of those things. I want to mention just for a moment uh, wisdom teeth because uh, they can be a serious problem. Uh, quite often... Uh, we get what we call pericoronitis, which is an infection around a wisdom tooth that's under the tissue. The wisdom tooth is still back under the tissue. It may be something like this where there's not enough room for the wisdom tooth to come in. So those situations will perpetuate. You can give antibiotics. You can take care of that. But it's coming back. And it will, again, be a, be a problem. It may come back so many times that you end up losing that tooth and maybe even the tooth in front of it. So it's a, it, it can be a serious problem. And I mentioned from the standpoint of medicine that those kind of third molar infections and things like that can be devastating when you have a, a patient with compromised immune system and is on uh, maybe long-term uh, steroids or they... Uh, have leukemia or they've been on chemotherapy and their resistance is just not going to take it and they maybe have been fine all, all along but all of a sudden, you know, these areas that are prone to give a problem need to be taken care of and it's awfully difficult when they're in a full-blown episode of leukemia or, or whatever and then you're called in to see them in the hospital and it's a, it's a tough road for all of us. So I just mentioned that prevention is a pound of cure. The peritonsillar abscess is, has a lot of uh, different causes. It can be caused by the breakdown of the capsule around the, the tonsil and, and cause, you know, uh, a, a serious problem. It can be caused from dental origin. But when it occurs, it is wicked. About 60% of the patients that have peritonsillar abscess, have uh, trismus. They have severe trismus means I can't open, can't open the mouth widely because it has already involved the pterygoid muscles and that space. Uh, 
they, they may become hoarse, they lose their appetite, they're definitely febrile, they have an enlarged tonsil, they have deviation of the uvula. So those kind of situations, you can see that here. See the uvula over there? You see the large, uh, the tonsil is, is deviated way to the midline, and there's this tremendous swelling in this area. Well, uh, when, you, when you see that, when you identify that, there's one thing that's very important, and that is we like to get a good, pure culture as much as we can. So a syringe is a great uh, way to draw pus out and to be able to get a nice, clean culture uh, so that you can find out the organism. Start the patient on antibiotics, drain the area, but in the superior pole of this, area is a great way to get a sample and, and draw uh, pus out for a culture and a sensitivity. Uh, that helps us a lot down the road, and uh, it allows us to uh, understand. And there can be a, a tremendous amount of pus in, in some of these kind of things. I don't like to draw a tremendous amount out because when I am doing the IND, I want to make sure that the cavity stays open a bit so that I can put a good drain in. I don't want to draw it down so much that I can't do that. So here again is the deviation of the uvula, the tremendous swelling and infection, and and there's where the the basic incision and drainage is. Notice that here's where the tonsil is, and you want to go through the mucosa, sort of the muscularis area and into the abscess cavity, but not real deep, because as you go deep, there are some large vessels in that area. And so you want to go through that and then use your hemostat to open the area up, irrigate it, make sure that that, that area is, uh, is good, and same principles. Now, the worst kind, we notice we're getting worse infections all along. Um, some of these infections, if they go longer, become extremely serious. Ludwig's angina is when you get called to the emergency room and they say, this fellow can't swallow, he's drooling, he has a fever, he, he's, uh, got, he's weak, he's fatigued, uh, you know, and, and he is having difficulty breathing because Ludwig's angina is a multi-space infection, which is life-threatening, a multi-space infection. It is sometimes difficult for these patients to talk when they, they may be a bit confused. They have uh, some mental changes, and it's due to hypoxia because it is so difficult for them to start to be able to breathe. They have strider. You know what strider is? Sort of the harsh uh, sound heard during inspiration, when, uh, which signals an obstructed airway. So they, they have that. They have rapid respirations. You know, they, they have tachapnea is what we call it. They have drooling. They have difficulty uh, breathing. They have dysphagia, the difficulty swallowing. And so that is the, the character of, of an individual that, is, that has this kind of a problem. So what do we do? Well, we saw managing the airway, the, the pulmonary toilet, as we say, uh, 
is managed with the tracheostomy. So the first thing I want to do is get that patient a good airway so that they can breathe and their pulse oximetry looks a lot better and my anesthesiologist is happier and, and all those kind of things. So the first thing I did with that patient was get a good, good airway. And I, I do it basically with sedation. I give the patient a little sedation, use local anesthesia, and do a tracheostomy. I don't do emergency tracheostomies. Everything is done calmly, coolly, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's, that's basically the way. Now, this patient may also have a deviation of the trachea because of how deep and how far down the swelling goes. So these are some other patients. Some were seen on the mission field that, that had borderline Ludwig's. And, and uh, you can see how the redness and the expansion and the pus and, and also the brawny hardness of, of the situation does. This is a patient I, I thought would be interesting to look at, but um, this is a MRI. And, and look at the, the, you can see some abscess cavities. You can see how brawny the swelling is, how it extends back. Where's the airway? Well, really, it's, it's non-existent. And that's that's really what happens with these with these patients. You can you can know the amount of bacteremia that they're getting, and and how significant it is, and why this is such a a dangerous uh, situation. And I thought, well, we ought to show a little bit about the problem. Uh, you you know, you have this peritonsillar abscess that extends here, uh, and what actually happens with the other is that you get a submandibular sublingual. You have it extending all the way back into the prevertebral space often. And from the prevertebral space, you go down to the mediastinum. So it's a clear pathway to get pericarditis and, and so forth. It's a, it's a very serious situation. So I, I think it's so important for us to understand how these spaces communicate. You know, how these spaces communicate and how you can go from one space to the other, from the uh, submental space, you can go from the sublingual all the way down to the submaxillary space, the lateral pharyngeal space, and, and right down to the prevertebral space. So it's a very serious space. We call this space actually space Four, which is danger space four. You're, we are then ready to get into the mediastinum and so forth. So it's a very serious condition, as I had mentioned before. And how all these spaces connect is an oblique look. You can see that there is freedom to extend all the way back into and around the great vessels, the carotid sheath, the uh, prevertebral space, the alar fascia, the danger space four, and so forth. So, I mean, when we look at MRIs, they give us the best picture of how far these, uh, these infections have gone and then what we have to do. Now, many, what, what happens if, it, if an abscess isn't treated? Well, 
sometimes it's going to drain on its own. And uh, here's a particular example of someone who was seen many times. And they have performed incisions, and the drainage continues. I mean, when as I look at that, I think of other things as well. Histoplasmosis, brucellosis, some of the things we need to run cultures on that could be involved. But I'm thinking dental, too, because I'm a dentist. And uh, so, but, but when these things have occurred, whoever was taking care of the patient wasn't thinking dental. They were thinking, this is a, a boil, it's a skin infection, it's something like that, and yet that's not the case. And often on the field there aren't x-rays. People are not familiar to look at what could be the, the problem. When I was in India, I saw a beautiful young girl who had this for many years. I mean, it was dimpled, it was swollen, it was constantly draining. It's a dental infection that she had that was going right out, you know, into the, the soft tissue. And uh, when I was in the office one day, had a buddy who was a dermatologist, and he said, hey, you know, this patient came in with this thing. I don't, I, I can't figure out, it's not, a, it's not a dermatology problem. I think they may have a dental problem. So I took an x-ray, and could you believe it? He said, I looked in the mouth. He said, I didn't see a bad tooth. And he did. And there wasn't a bad tooth visible. Believe it or not, somehow there was an opening in this impacted tooth area where that tooth became decayed, became abscessed. It's all the way down to the floor. I mean, it's draining out uh, the bottom of the mandible, and infection is there, but it's not visible in the mouth. It's all below the bone. So it's, isn't that an interesting thing? And we, yeah, you don't see those things all the time. So I thought, well, that's a good thing. I, I'll, I'll bring that up because sometimes we don't see, you know, what what is what is actually going on there. But this is not a rare phenomenon. So uh, we need to be aware of it. Uh, cutaneous fistulas, uh, and then in this person, it was very obvious. You see. So it was draining through, and, and often you might not see it draining through the inferior border, but the amount of infection in the bone and bone loss is, is quite a bit. So we need to be very careful as we look at that. I know a lot of uh, my cardiology uh, buddies and, and orthopedists and so forth will send a patient in before they get hip replacements or before they get... Uh, you know, some of those, and they say, hey, would you just, uh, this patient has a dentist, and, and I think they're doing all right and everything, but I, want, I don't want to get in there and start doing something and have them have a, a bacteremia that's going to really be a problem when I put in their heart valve or when I, you know, do some of those things. So they asked me to sort of take a look at them, get out anything that's suspicious, do anything that might need to be done so that we don't have a problem in the midst of all the surgery and so forth. And then there are those chronic abscesses with little uh, youngsters that that develop, and we can see them, that, that, that they drain, 
or they become granulomas beside, you know, some deciduous or baby teeth. And they're not a, a, an acute emergency, I mean, but they need to be taken care of. That's a, a real indication that, uh, you know, they're, they're probably beyond a pulpotomy. The other thing is salivary gland infections and sialis, and that's another uh, another thing. Uh, often, at the sialolith, you, you'll be able to see it in the Wharton duct, and it, it often means sometimes we have to open that area up. But what are the symptoms that, that happens? Every time someone goes out to eat or eats at home, they get this swelling that develops under the jaw. It's painful. The enlargement is there, and then it might start to go down, but it continues. Now, those people may not seek help, but they don't go out an awful lot to eat and everything, and they're, not, they're very uncomfortable. And so uh, we, we need often at times to evaluate those kind of patients. Uh, usually, you know, this is the sublingual gland. This is the one that forms ranulas or large cysts that form in the, in the floor of the mouth. The submandibular gland is down below, and the submandibular gland is the one that you see that Wharton's duct goes down in there. It's a long-running duct that runs over the mylohyoid muscle, as you remember, and goes down into the floor of the mouth. Since that duct is a long-running duct, you know what happens. Because of that, there's sometimes stasis. Someone gets dehydrated. They form uh, a calculus. That, that actually we call a sialolith. But there are also mucus plugs that form in that gland. If you know it's a mucus plug, you're not going to go in and do surgery to remove a mucus plug. You can put them on le- sour lemon drops and you can irrigate you know, the duct and dilate the duct and get the mucus plug to get out of there because a mucus plug will become calcified later on. It's an obstructive kind of phenomena that they have in the submandibular gland. And, and these can be very uncomfortable. One of my buddies, when I was at Mass General, called me in, said, I want you to take a look at this gal. She's in here for her medical problems. And we went over her medical problems and said, you know, out of the blue today, she's blown up. She looks like, you know, I don't know whether she's got an abscess tooth or what, what she's got. So basically... Uh, she had some parotitis. Um, she had become dehydrated. The thing that keeps salivary glands from getting infected is what? Salivary flow. It keeps moving through the ducts. It keeps things from getting infected. Retrograde infection happens when people become dehydrated. They've got different kinds of medical problems. So it, it's important. These are These are individuals who have developed... Uh, not just, as we look at here, a, an enlargement after I eat that seems to go down, but now an enlargement that has caused infection in the gland and has caused uh, a problem. So we need to understand, are we in a problem where we just get the sialolith out? Are we in a problem where the gland has been destroyed and is really damaged? and is not going to be able to work properly. 
So we need to look at some of those things. And, of course, an exam always helps. You know, we, we, we see some pus draining either out of Stenson's duct or Wharton's duct. We can sometimes see a sialolith in the midst of some of that. We, it's awfully nice if it's right there, but uh, quite often it's not right there. And, uh, you know, and, and we have, uh, and they can be a fairly decent size, uh, and they're, they're quite hard. Uh, but there is a way that we can do this as we often do sialograms. I don't know if you know about sialograms, but it's injecting dye into the, into the duct of the, of the salivary gland. And when that happens, we can sort of get an idea of what's going on. Here's a couple of examples of some patients with uh, infections or enlargements, obstructions, of the parotid gland. And I, you know, this, this is a, a great example of the, you know, retromandibular portion of the parotid gland and how that uh, goes right up to the preauricular area. That's how one way that you, you know it's the parotid gland because of the outline, because of where, where your anatomy shows that problem to exist. So, when we inject, what we're looking for is a branched tree effect. Uh, this, is, this is done with digital radiography. Uh, it's much better than the standard radiography that we had used years ago. It's much more definite in appearance. We try and take a number of pictures for it because we may see a branched tree effect and it, it, it looks like a, a, a ball and glove. What does that show? Well, that shows there's a tumor in there, that the branch tree is covering a tumor intrinsic in the gland. So we can tell that. Then the other thing that we do after we do the sialogram is we give them a lemon. What does that do? That, that's how, how fast do they empty? Is that gland good or is it damaged? Is it producing saliva? Is it emptying it out? So we know those kind of things. And then, you know, quite often my buddies always send me things that's interesting and a dermatologist or someone else sends you something and you do a sialogram and this is Sjogren's syndrome. It's a, notice the, the leaves on the tree. So it's, it's an entirely different kind of picture when, when we, uh, you know, have, you know, our medical colleagues sort of looking at that and they want us to, say is, are these other glands involved? You know, they had some swelling of the lacrimal gland. They have some dryness of the mouth. They have these symptoms. And they say, tell me more. <laughs> what, else, what else is involved and how can we do it? And so these things can be painful. They're very concerning to the patient. They're, they're a sort of an oral surgery uh, emergency. How do we, we had a, have a, a plan in our office. If a physician calls the office, we will see their patient that day, irregardless of what our schedule is. That's what we'll do. Because, uh, and because of that, it, it's a great relationship, you know, and, and I know if they're concerned enough to, to send the patient, then I'm happy to, to see them that day. Well, dislocated mandibles, that, you know, you might not think it's an emergency. The patient does. And uh, the other thing is, 
when that when that happens, what is happening to the structures? What's happening to uh, all of us know and all of us have seen patients, I think, with maybe dislocations. And there's some things that I want you to know. It can be very difficult. I was called up to the ICU to see a patient that had a dislocated mandible. And unfortunately, the patient was brought in from another hospital, and they had been at that hospital for two weeks. So this patient now had a dislocated mandible that was probably going on three weeks. Well, there was plan A, B, and C. I I didn't think that we were going to be able to get it done, uh, you know, mechanically and easily. So we took the patient to the OR. We uh, made a burr hole in the in the lower part of the mandible to see if we could actually use traction to pull the mandible down and try and get it back. It did not happen. I could not believe it, you know, that I couldn't put enough wire pressure and traction to get the mandible back down from sort of what we would term the infratemporal fossa. That's where it is. And then you've got this big eminence that you've got to get down below to get it back. And uh, not happening. We had to actually open the joint up and free free up the mandible to try and get it back. It is not fun. So I, uh, P.S., it's not fun for the patient either. So at any rate, I, I think the mistake that we make most often is not getting our fingers back far enough in the in the mandible. You know, we we're, we're out towards the end, and it's sort of gagging when you get your fingers back as far as maybe you might not get them. But you need to use those fingers to press that posterior part of the mandible down so that you're, you're actually getting a downward pressure there as you let it ride back over the eminence. Now, we often say, you know, you think you're going to be all right uh, when these things happen. Here's a, an x-ray of a that patient with a dislocation that we that I that I mentioned to you, but when that when the uh, jaw is subluxed completely or dislocated, these fingers are not back far enough in that picture. They need to be the, with the thumbs way back in the second molar area, and you need to push down. Now sometimes the patient won't let you do that. They're just nervous, they're uncomfortable, they're tightening up, and so we have to use sedation to just get them relaxed. And, uh, and, and that, that usually will allow us to get it back into position. And, and if they have a chronic condition or it's been dislocated for a while, I, I really recommend using sort of what we term a, a Barton bandaged or something, or even I'll put on Ivy Loops or some other appliance to try and keep them from opening real wide. Because they have a tendency, even if they yawn, I say, put your hand underneath your jaw. Don't, don't yawn real wide because, boom, here I am again. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't like that. 
So uh, if they, you know, if they wear a Barton bandage or whatever way you can work it out, because it will, it, it, you know, Murphy's Law says if it can happen, it will happen. Well, it, it'll dislocate again. Well, another area that's, that's some emergencies uh, is, is this particular area of trauma, of false teeth or uh, dental, some dental fractures that, that occur of the alveolar process with teeth in it. So, the, I mean, we'll, you'll see, you know, a number of these. And, and when these things occur, well, what are we, we going to do, you know? Uh, they, they take various forms, and it can be anything from a chainsaw accident to an automobile accident to a hockey accident to, you know, so they happen in, in many ways, in many forms. And what, what we want to do, uh, what our goal is, is to, to take an x-ray and see this is an example sort of of just some subluxing. These, these teeth have been partially evulsed from the socket. And, and I think all of you are aware that the roots of, of the teeth are, are covered by a periodontal membrane. If you put the tooth into a solution that kills the periodontal membrane where it's been out too long, it will ankylose or resorb. So, I mean, you can try and put it back. It may work for a while, but it's not a long-time survivor. So that is the thing. We try and preserve that. There is actually some solutions. You can buy these little things that you can put the tooth in, and it helps preserve the periodontal membrane, and, and you know, you can soak it in it, and you can send it to your oral surgeon if you don't want to get involved with it or whatever. But we're a lot better off today than we were years ago with this because we'd have to put these ugly wires on and around teeth and use a, you know, so it really made periodontal problems and people didn't come back to get them off and, oh, it was a nightmare, you know. But, but now we're really at a point where we can do some really pretty nice things. So, you know, we have the applying acid. You know, we clean the teeth off. We dry it. We take the etching off. We uh, put appliances on the, the teeth, like orthodontic appliances. We can bend a wire around. We can use different kinds of things. About You know, and the, and the interesting thing is if you stabilize the tooth and you put it back into position and you align it properly, I mean, you only need that to have those appliances on a couple weeks. That's all. And you're, you're ready to take those off. I do advise you, as you take them off, to use a burr to, to grind around those things. You don't want to put extra trauma on at, at two weeks on that, on that whole environment. But you know what happens? These areas, which used to be a great problem, boy, they heal great, you know, because you're, you don't have these wires around the things and all that kind of thing. So it really, is, it's a great, um, it's a great thing for, for patients. And uh, so uh, sometimes I don't have all the equipment that, and I I would use something like this because I'm in the OR and and uh, the, the patient has other problems, may have a fracture of the of the mandible and and so forth. But this was a patient that I did in the OR. And actually, both of those teeth were evulsed, 
and the EMTs put it in that solution. So, I, I mean, it was many, many hours, and the patient had a, a fracture of the mandible that I opened and everything, and I went back and I did that. And this is a picture, of, you know, I think a year later. So, I mean, it's amazing, you know, that that, that solution really works that good. I, I didn't think it was... I told the patient, I don't, I don't know that we're going to be successful, but I want you to look good. <laughs> so sometimes these teeth also have been re-implanted, and when they're re-implanted, they're, you know, uh, the, the root uh, resorbs. There, there could be a lot of infection that gets up in there. We sometimes will see a fistula. And so uh, surgically we'll go ahead and do sort of a root canal. And this patient, too, I was concerned about how long this thing, you know, may last. And they got good fill-in, and the tooth is stable, but I don't think it's a long-term situation. So ultimately, uh, something else needs to to be done. But uh, many of the patients, too, have non-displaced fractures or ones that we can manipulate so that the occlusion is good when there's a step that this fracture line goes right up here and there's a step in the in the occlusion we can get them into good occlusion we can get good alignment and then we can put in a a bone plate which allows us to uh, you know to get good stability so there's so much that we can do today without putting the patient in intermaxillary fixation and and cause that kind of problems. I I was just wondering, you know, since we've been going over a few of those things, whether you wanted to monkey around or Mickey Mouse with some other suggestion. So do you have any anything you wanted to talk about, uh, about any of uh, sort of oral surgery? Now, I didn't get into maxillofacial deformities or... Uh, maxillofacial injuries, because that would be another big time. But I was just trying to talk about things that you might see in your office that you need to, that would be an emergency and how it might be handled. Any questions? Can you help me on how to do some of these things? What do you think? Oral antral fistula, good question. Uh, in the field. In the field, okay. So first we know, the, the problem on the field is two, twofold. One is we don't know the condition of the sinus. The chances are it's been there a long time. The sinus membrane is, is uh, pathologic. You know the cilia that are supposed to, and the maxillary sinus, is a dependent, uh, is not a dependent sinus. The orifice, it opens into the nose, but it doesn't drain easily. So what we do is do an oral, I mean a, a, a nasal antrostomy. We take, the, we go down below the osteum and make at the floor of the nose another opening into the sinus. 
before we do that, we open the sinus up with a caldwell luck procedure. We clean out the sinus membrane. We pack it with like iodoform gauze and uh, Bips paste or some other kind of thing. We bring out that little end into the nose, that new opening that we made. That sinus is now a dependent draining sinus. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I can get over here. I'm tethered, man. Um, Not so good. Uh, But we try and create then a dependent draining sinus so that when we close that that, uh, thing, if you look at it here, the maxillary sinus sort of looks like this, and there's the floor, the orbit, and it, it opens like in here. And, and, and then there's the inferior turbinate in the nose over there. And so what we do is go below the inferior turbinate, and we make an opening. And we make a good size opening. We go in from this side, clean out the sinus area, and over here is an oral antral fistula. So we've got this area packed, and we we bring, we take that gauze that we packed this with, we bring it out here into the nose. And then out in the area of the oral antral fistula, now we want to get a sort of a closure, a complete closure. And a lot depends, if we're in our own country, we're concerned, are they going to have a prosthetic appliance? Are we going to sort of take away the vestibule so they won't have any vestibule left? Because the easiest way to do it is to do what we call a vertical, you know, releasing flap that, that comes sort of around the teeth, sort of like that, and stretch it over the the fistula area and then sew it. So we may, we want to say the fistula area is is right, you know, is right here. And you, you may not have any areas for the teeth there, so that might make it easier for you. But the, the, the way that we need to do that is we, ref, we make our incisions wide of the area we want to cover, and then what we do is elevate that flap. So it's a mucoperiosteal flap. We have the periosteum there. We take a hold of this flap with our uh, pickups, and we make an incision in the periosteum that runs right like that from the inside. Now, if I looked at this on the outside, I'm not going through the mucosa. I've made it in. What does that do? Frees up that flap. Now it's really, I mean, it's the periosteum that holds it tight because you don't want any tension on it. So now you've free, you've gone across there, you've freed it up. Now it really, you know, you can stretch it a mile before it tears an inch. So you, you want to just get it up over, you know, that area and suture. You want to take all this area out so there's no 
epithelium there. So you may have made it a little larger. You don't know what you're going to find, you know, underneath. But then you can stretch it over there. You can actually even trim this if you want to make it, you know, fit nicely. You need to put some sutures in there. I mean, if you're on the field, the chances are that, you know, you want to use maybe resorbable sutures. But that's a sort of – and the problem is on the field you don't have good suction. You don't have good lighting. Uh, the other problem is you, you don't often have x-rays uh, on the field unless you do that. Bingo. Now you've got x-rays. Have any of you ever used that uh, no, the Nomad Pro? Awesome. Awesome. You, it's, it's, there it is. That's your x-ray unit. You can ju- you can take it around. You uh, it comes in a nice a nice case that the shield over there is is all you need when you're when you're doing it. You can do it with uh, digital. You can do regular film. You can you know so you can do occlusal films. You can set it for posteriors, anteriors, whatever you want, and you could be anywhere. And you you got the whole deal. You charge it. You know it's 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 char- the chargeable handle um, is right here. So you know the, some of those difficult cases all of a sudden become a little easier to diagnose and 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 you you program it right on the front. I mean even I can do it. So you know it's easy. Um, now, the only thing I would say, if you're doing that, if you're taking this film, you know they have the self-developing film, so you don't need to have your developer, your fixer, your wash, and all that. What you do is you take it, you buy it like this, it comes in a packet like this, and you push the developer and fixer into the film area. You, 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 yeah, you massage it, you do everything, and within like 45 seconds, you have a picture, you know. And so you can do that. Now, the thing is, you don't want to let the x-ray get the people who are, you're traveling somewhere. You put this where it's going to be x-rayed in your check luggage or in your hand luggage, and they say, put it on here and, you know, walk. (laughs) You'll have a bear in the dark den. That's what all your, you won't. You, you're finished. You lost all your film if they if they X-ray. So you have to say, look, this is X-ray film. I can't put it through your X-ray machine. I need you to look at it and examine it so I can go through. But if you put it through your machine, it's ruined for me. So they'll open it. They'll look at it. They'll not understand it. They'll try and look for a paper. They'll call in somebody else. They'll finally they'll say, go ahead. But but that's the only way to do it because if you don't do that you're 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 lost. I mean, it, that's it. Yeah, that's why I say you got to bring it with you, but not let it go through the thing. Take it out. Yeah. Well, they'll pull it out then anyway because they're not going to let you get by with that. They'll say, "What's in there? A head?" Yeah. So. Anyway, that's the that's the kind of deal. Any any yes. So, what are the top three most prevalent emergencies that you see uh, in developing countries, and you know, say here in developed countries, are 
Yes, yeah, there's a big difference. Today, we don't take away, we don't extract many teeth. I mean, when we extract teeth, uh, it's uh, because, you know, they're, they're really lost. And most dentists are thinking about implants. And when we take that out, we're going to put an implant right in or we're going to do a bridge. Or the people that they send have a lot of restorative material in their mouth already. They have bridge work. They have porcelain crowns. They have all that. So when I do extractions, I don't use elevators. I, I, don't, I don't push on other teeth. I don't, you know, I have anatomic forceps and I use special ways of getting teeth out atraumatically so that I, we're ready to do bone grafting or we're ready to put an implant in. On the field, there are tremendous, uh, I mean, infections are enormous. They're the rule. No matter where we go, I mean, the ratio of dentists to uh, patients can be anywhere from 100,000 to one to a million to one. And I mean, it, it's, it's unfathomable. So we don't see preventive care. Uh, we don't see, and, and dentistry is, has survived in our country with great preventive care, trying to put themselves out of business, you know. And, and that has made a great deal of difference. The fluorides and everything have been tremendous. And when we go into developing countries, that has not been the case. I think spending more time in preventive education is a good step. But the infection rate the long-term infections, the broken-down teeth, make it very, very difficult for people on the field. Uh, it makes it difficult because they don't have x-ray. They don't really have that great lighting. They often don't have suction. And they have teeth that people have had infected for a long time. And the body responds by getting dense bone around this tooth that's been in there a long time. It's, it doesn't want the infection that's been promulgated by the tooth to, to be spreading all over. So it gets very dense. And the tooth root, instead of, it becomes like a pretzel in concrete. Now, how are you going to get it out? You know what I mean? It's, it's just going to break away. So the, the, the root is non-vital. It's brittle. And you've got a tooth with a lot, you know, a bone that's very dense. And, it, and so what you're doing, and a lot of our dentists today don't take a lot of teeth out. They don't like to take teeth out. They'd rather me have the problem than they have the problem. And they want to be nice to their patients. You know, they say, well, if this is hard to get out or I have a problem, I don't want to be the one who's going to do it. Send them to Sam. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the deal is that we don't see what we see on the field at, in, in, our, in this country. Um, and, and honestly, and I say that also I think with modesty, I hope, that we have the gold standard of dentistry in the, in the United States. We are doing things routinely that are excellent for patient care. And... Uh, you know, that doesn't happen sometimes when you have uni-payer systems or when you have big uh, groups that you're getting paid for and because it's too expensive. Dentistry is expensive. 
But when you get on the field, it's, uh, it's infections, it's uh, broken teeth, it, it's pain. Those are the most common things that we see dentally, you know, the first group of things that we looked at. And fortunately, we don't see that many in our, in our country. But thank you folks so much. If there's any other questions, be happy to answer them.